My name is Jonathan Davis, one of the associate editors. And today we will be discussing a review article in this month's print edition of the journal entitled Respiratory Transition in the Newborn, a Three-Phase Process. I have with me two of the authors and I will ask them to introduce themselves and where they're from. Uh, my name's Stuart Hooper. I'm uh, the head of the Ritchie Centre at the Hudson Research Institute and Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. My name is Arjen Tepers. I'm a neonatologist in the Leiden University Medical Centre in the Netherlands. Thank you both very much for uh, for joining us for the podcast. Um, I think this is a really important uh, article uh, we're discussing, and I think it's important for anybody who is involved with looking after babies uh, during the transition process uh, around the time of birth, and that's pretty much every pediatrician. Um, so I think it's 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 useful uh, for for us to understand sort of the the, the nuts and bolts of what's happening, the physiology. Um, so I'd like to start with you, uh, uh, Professor Hooper. Um, could you give the listeners a, a, a brief overview of the three-step process you propose, uh, which occurs uh, around the time of birth? Okay. Look, th- this is something that is sort of a genesis of a concept that we've been thinking about for some quite some time, and r- really, it, it's just logical. Before birth, the, the, the airways are liquid-filled, and uh, we're now known for quite a long time that um, the way in which the lungs are cleared of liquid after birth um, is that um, the liquid travels back through the airways and is um, moves across the distal airway wall into the tissue. So that immediately tells us that there's some um, major changes in the uh, fluid dynamics that of the of the or the type of material that fills the airways. Uh, in particular, as the fluid changes um, from a liquid to an air, um, the resistance of the uh, of the movement of the fluid um, markedly decreases. So initially, when the the fluid is a liquid, then um, the resistance is quite high, and this is simply due to the fact of the viscosity uh, difference between air and water. So initially, you have a high resistance. And as the lung aerates, the resistance um, dramatically decreases. So this gives you with a, a fundamental problem. If you start um, trying to, uh, to initiate um, ventilation, then um, using you must either use a high pressure to try and move the high resistance fluid back or liquid back through the airways into the distal airways, or you use a longer time frame to do this. And this is really the first phase. The first phase is about clearing the airways of liquid because no gas exchange can occur until you aerate the distal gas exchange regions of the lung. And of course, no, no gas exchange can occur when it's liquid filled. The second phase, it really occurs when after the airways have aerated and the, have, the liquid has cleared, um, the liquid then must reside in the tissue and it resides in the tissue um, for a period of up to four hours. And during that phase, you have a a very different problem now. And the problem is that the the liquid um, increases the interstitial tissue pressure, and so there's a greater likelihood for the liquid to re-enter the the airways. So one of the fundamental problems that you have in um, um, ventilating these lungs is preventing the liquid from re-entering the airways. Then the third phase is um, is basically 
when the lungs aerated and the liquid is cleared. And during that time, ventilation can more focus on simple gas exchange problems that may or may not develop. Okay, well, th thank you very much. I mean, um, uh, uh, Dr. Tapas, um, what are the practical implications of this sort of, uh, sort of process and the understanding of this physiology? Um, it doesn't mean that we have to use a differing approach to the delivery room management depending on which phase the baby is in, or will a one-size-fit-all? Well, no, I don't think one size fits all. Um, I think that's also the, the, the main message of this paper is that we we should really be aware as a clinician that the, the situation is completely different at birth with the lung characteristics than after birth or a few hours after birth. And that these three different phases are important to realize when you're ventilating a baby at birth when they don't, you know, don't manage to breathe on their own. And I think when, when you talk about the first phase when the lung is still liquid-filled and you need to aim for lung liquid or lung aeration, then um, the, the, the ways of ventilation is completely different than the hours later when you're ventilating, a, yeah, let's say, a dry lung. And one of the ways to do that is, for example, to, to overcome the high resistance of the lung liquid is to give a sustained inflation or you can choose for the alternative and increase the pressure. But because we are always cautious about giving higher pressures, I think the best way to do it is to give sustained inflation. Now, the second phase is that that's just for a clinician is to, to, to re-emphasize is that PEEP is very important because in the second phase when the lung liquid are, have the tendency to go back into the airways, and the, the infant has not the strength to to um, uh, to prevent that by building up peep by himself by grunting or uh, giving extra braking maneuvers, or the surfactant is too less to prevent it, then we should apply more CPAP or more peep than what we think. So that's the second phase, and then then the later on, but that's already when most of often when you have left the delivery room is when the third phase is getting there, when the lung liquid is getting absorbed by the lymphatic vessels and the vascular vessels, when you have exactly the state where, um, where the lung is as, as comparable to the adult lung. Okay. Uh, you, you mentioned that the application of sustained inflation. The evidence in clinical studies in humans is not exactly robust. Um, do you think that uh, sustained inflation is necessary for um, the necessary approach uh, for, for human subjects? Um, um, I, I agree with you is that the evidence, in, yeah, the clinical evidence is not robust, uh, but I uh, have to say that the more and more uh, experiments we perform in applying sustained inflation, the more and more I get, I get convinced that this is the way to go to Perform, uh, to perform sustained inflation and give them nice uniform lung aeration. If you see, look at the clinical studies that it is not robust, I have to also to say that the, the way we are ventilating currently with um, 20 or 25 centimeters of water and giving tidal ventilation, there is absolutely no evidence that that gives lung aeration, so that's not robust either. But the, the, the thing is with the sustained inflation um, is that we have performed the experimental studies by intubating or give it, do it, perform a tracheostomy intubate uh, the preterm infant. And we kind of overlooking 
the difference in experimental studies and the clinical situation because we give a non-invasive ventilation. We, we, we primarily perform mass ventilation. And uh, the problem is, is the larynx, is that the larynx antenatally is closed, chronically closed. And um, we don't know when the, the larynx will translate to, uh, to an open a patent uh, uh, larynx. And I think that um, when you give for mass ventilation sustained inflation, that the mass, the sustained inflation could be insufficient because you're ventilating against a closed larynx. So we have to overcome that. And I think there's more research needed to find a way how we can overcome the larynx problem with ventilation. Okay, well, thank you. Um, do you think uh, sustained inflation, obviously it has good effects shown from uh, animal data that it, it inflates the lungs. Do you think it has any deleterious effects on the circulation or the return of circulation that we need to be concerned about? Okay, can I actually just jump in there? Yeah, sorry. I, look, I think, you know, that from the scientific point of view, there's back, we've known from back in the 80s that in the fetus, the glottis is actively adducted during uh, apnea. And that, that adduction increases during periods of hypoxia. So what Ian's talking about there is very much a, a, a probably quite a big problem, an unrealised problem, in that at birth, particularly, the, the, glot, the preterm infant is basically an exteriorised fetus. And so if it's apneic, it will have a, a, an adducted glottis. And if it becomes progressively hypoxic, the glottis um, is more likely to be adducted and not to open. And so giving non-invasive ventilation in that context is going to be quite a difficult approach. But getting back to um, your question, which was about a sustained inflation and how effective it can be or, or is or it isn't, I think the point is in, in an apneic infant, and particularly in an intubated, one that needs intubation, there is no question that a sustained inflation will uh, um, improve aeration of the lung. I mean, we've shown this quite um, very, very um, significantly in the, in, the, in, the, in the experimentally. We've also shown that the sustained inflation does not impede the increase in pulmonary blood flow or the cardiovascular transition yeah. at birth. Now, this was, to some extent, a very su surprising finding because we expected, like many people, that um, the uh, elevated intrathoracic pressure would impede the, uh, um, the increase in, or decrease in pulmonary vascular resistance. But that actually didn't turn out to be the case. Um, there seems to be a number of factors at play here that stimulate the increase in pulmonary blood flow at birth, uh, one of which is one that we really don't quite understand just as yet, which appears to be something about just getting gas into the lung. And the potency that of that effect in terms of decreasing pulmonary vascular resistance far overrides any other effect of a sustained increase in thoracic, intrathoracic pressure. And that's been published. We published that a few years ago. So can I comment okay. on that? Of um, course, of course. Because I would like to emphasize is that, that, that this shows how important this lung aeration is at birth, is that apparently it triggers also the pulmonary blood flow. So it's not only important for lung aeration, that the lung aeration is not only important for the lung liquid clearance, but also for um, um, the increase in pulmonary blood flow. Now, it also emphasizes that if you 
have an, a not uniform long duration, so your, 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 your long duration is not complete, then you get a ventilation perfusion mismatch. Okay. Okay. Well, that's um, probably more in, uh, a fantastic sort of uh, d description of, of what I was hoping to get from from that question. Um, uh, Professor Huber, if we can go back to you. Um, it, it, in the second phase, uh, if babies are are breathing for themselves but still demonstrate respiratory distress, is CPAP recommended for all gestation? Yeah. Look, I, I, I think so. I, I think definitely maintaining an end expiratory pressure, and particularly if um, the infant is being ventilated um, non-invasively, then CPAP would definitely be recommended. But bearing in mind that the infant actually will also auto-regulate things quite um, quite efficiently as well by um, closing the glottis of doing expiratory braking. Um, and so, yeah. you know, in, in that sense, they actually spend a very short period of time down at, at, at uh, atmospheric pressure. And so, to, but always having a CPAP there to help maintain the clearance of um, or the, the um, maintain or prevent or reduce the re-entry of liquid into the airways at end expiration is very important. I'd just like to come back to also, if that's all right, the, the point that Ian made about um, uh, ventilation perfusion mismatch and, mm -hmm. you know, the, the question then arises again from a, a um, uh, a, a, a theoretical point of view, and how important at birth is a, or what is it, how big a problem is ventilation perfusion mismatch? And we would argue that because the increase in pulmonary blood flow is so important for maintaining cardiac output, it's more important that the pulmonary blood flow goes up rather than you entirely aerate the lungs. So the, the biggest problem I think would be was that if you only had partial aeration of the lung and only partial aeration of the lung caused only a partial increase in pulmonary blood flow, that would be a major problem because you'd not only have hypoxia, but you'd also have a limited cardiac output. In, mm -hmm. in, in this situation, it looks like the, the way in which the biology has been designed is that irrespective of how much of the lung aerates, you get a maximum increase in pulmonary blood flow. And therefore you do not, you can maintain cardiac output even though your gas exchange is not optimal. And I think that's what we observe uh, every day in the clinic when we try to ventilate preterm infants is that we have to increase the, the oxygen just to compensate for the, the ventilation perfusion mismatch. Okay. Um, just moving on from that onto the, the clinical application of, of these um, the, this sort of physiological process um, many of the recommendations are well at least some of the recommendations have yet to be included or considered in national or international resuscitation guidance certainly in the UK the, the newborn life support um, uh, course uh, uses sustained inflation as part of its um, uh, part of the algorithm, but the, the, the NRP uh, in other parts of the world does not. Do you think that there requires some modification of, of guidelines, uh, or do you think further evidence is required from clinical trials to before that um, for these guidelines are to be amended? Would be good to get an answer from a physiologist and from a clinician. 
no. That's, well, it's fortunate that we have two physiologists and a clinician um, on the conversation. Um, I'm happy for either person to go first. I think what, what's really important here is there's definitely we always need more evidence. Okay, we need to do more studies. This is something, uh, an area of biology that um, really needs a greater attention to understand fully what's going on and particularly the yeah. timing for when we clamp the cord in all of this. Um, yeah. And I, But I think before we start doing any more clinical studies, we really need to understand the physiology so that we can design the clinical trials appropriately so that we actually end up answering a question rather than not then um, and uh, actually more questions and rather than finding a solution. What's your, your view on this, Ian? Wait, I don't, you, you don't have answered the question yet. Do you think you should already, as a physiologist, should implement um, the modification like sustained inflation in the guidelines, or you think there's more evidence needed? I think there's more evidence needed. I think what we need to do is to understand why they're so successful in, in animal experiments, but they're not successful in humans. I mean, we think that we have a, a clear path ahead in terms of what that that understanding is in terms of the glottis being closed in apneic infants and so any pressure that is applied non-invasively if the glottis is closed will not be transmitted down the airways to the lung. So I think we need to understand that first and then um, we need to actually do the trials um, which um, allow us to circumvent that problem. Yeah, I have to go with Stuart as, as a clinician, um, but also um, as a researcher. I think we really have to understand the basics of the physiology and how it works and how we can also, uh, based on that, how we can develop algorithms or uh, guidelines um, to help these babies. Um, but I have to say is that, that there are recommendations in the guidelines currently that we are giving the, the, the tidal ventilation of 25 centimeters water is also based on virtually no evidence. And it is very difficult as a researcher to come up with, with, um, with, with a lot of uh, experimental data, which you already have uh, provided, but also clinical data before you can change these guidelines. But I have to agree that we need more evidence, <clears throat> also clinical evidence, before you can change the guidelines, because that's, that's the way it, sh uh, it has been done so far. Okay, well, thank you both uh, very much for a, a really engaging discussion. Um, we uh, hope that people will um, continue to engage with the, the conversation, and they can do that through uh, the Archives of Disease and Childhood Fetal Neonatal Edition uh, Twitter handle, which is at ADC underscore FM, um, and also uh, through conversations uh, with um, the, the website, and also through my Twitter handle at Jonathan underscore Davis three. Um, hopefully, people will, will continue to, to think about this and, and discuss this, and uh, think further about the physiology and what it means to their own individual practice, and give the paper due consideration. Uh, and I thank you both very much for your um, very engaging discussion. Thank you.